can't hear me breathing, can you? This microphone just catches your... <laughs> See? <laughs> Got a new mic and it's not working. All right, so want to thank you for being here with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're certainly blessed by your presence, and I hope that uh, the song service and everything's been uplifting and encouraging thus far, and I hope the things that I present to you will be beneficial and edifying for you. We continue in our study in the book of Romans uh, in my struggle on how to present and what to present through Romans. Romans is a very meaty uh, subject matter that he, especially early on in the book of Romans, uh, Romans 3 through about 6 and 7, he's dealing a lot with the Old Testament law, and there's a lot of things to go through. And every time I sit down to present what I need to go over, it seems like if I move quickly to get through maybe two chapters, well, I'm leaving something out that's very important, and I'm not very good at that part. So we're just going to look at the whole chapter of Romans 4 today. That's the only way I've come to the conclusion that I can do it. Romans 4 is important. Paul is continuing on his understanding or our understanding, the Jews' understanding in the Old Testament law, in which there was no justification in the Old Testament law. But more importantly for us today, that's very under, we need understanding because it talks about the faith of Abraham and the great faith that Abraham had. And this is a, a blueprint or a template for you and I whenever we consider our faith and specifically the faith of Abraham. So looking at the breakdown of the book of Romans, we're in the circle part in Romans through Romans 3, through Romans 5 and verse 21, talking about salvation and justification. And Paul stated in Romans 3 and verse 21, he brought forth the law and the prophet as witnesses against the Jews and why this Old Testament law did not bring them justification. He brought the very thing that they thought brought them justification and sanctification. He said, and this shows you why it doesn't. And he used the law and the prophets to do that against them. And Paul didn't give any specific examples as to God's offering of his mercy. He just states it merely as fact. And he closes out Romans chapter 3 saying with three very important points, the justification comes of faith and not perfect law giving and that law keeping and that all were guilty before God. That God is the God of the Jew and the Gentile, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. But most importantly, that. It was not his objective to cast out the law or say that it was useless, but rather show that it had been established, that it stood, that it was valid, and that it served the purpose for which it was intended, and it was intended to point out man's sin, and therefore the consequences of that sin. And as he transitions into Romans chapter 3, we're going to go back to our clock analogy or our watch analogy, and we look at this watch and we see all these gears, and you count the gears that you see in this picture, you see seven gears. We don't see all the gears that, uh, I don't know if that's all the gears that work in a watch. I don't know anything about watch. I look at them and I tell time. But I do know by looking at this picture that if one of these gears are not functioning properly, my watch is not going to give me the right time or my date is not going to be right on my watch. And our salvation is no different. When we look at our salvation, we understand that there are many different gears that operate for salvation to work. Now, some of those gears are gears that are operated by God, and they're always going to work, and they're never going to fail. But there are some of those gears that are on our behalf. The grace and the mercy, those are operated by God, always going to be there. But these other gears that are required for us, sometimes they fail. And this is why this is important, is because when you look at Romans, Paul talks about all of these different gears, 
And we have to keep it in its proper context. You see, the challenge of Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 is this. In Western Christianity, many people have taken the principles or these gears and lifted them out to establish a narrative of religion that isn't true and is false. We need to keep them in their proper perspective and in their proper context. Now, the challenge of teaching that we have is that we can't seem to talk about one gear independently without talking about all the other gears. And the truth is, is we don't have time to talk about all the gears today. We're going to talk about some of these gears, two of these gears specifically. And because I don't talk about the gear of baptism, doesn't mean that baptism isn't necessary or isn't a part of salvation. It's just, I don't have time this morning to talk about all of the different gears in the the operation of salvation. Because we're trying to keep things in its proper context. Chapter 4 deals with two examples of witnesses that Paul continues to bring forth. He's brought the law and the prophets, the very thing that they thought established them, and now he brings Abraham and David. This is a very great logic that Paul brings forth because Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, and then David, who was the man that established Israel as this great kingdom, these were men that they revered and they put on a pedestal. And so David then uses these men as witnesses against the Jews. And Paul is driving home the point that the Jews and Gentiles are both guilty before God as he opens up in Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? What did Abraham find according to the flesh? Now Paul is setting up his next point. He's he's ushering in Abraham as his key witness. And we know that according to the flesh, he's talking about the deeds of the flesh. Specifically in this instance, it's talking about circumcision. To simplify, Paul is asking if Abraham gained anything or found justification through the flesh. In verse 2, he continues that if Abraham had continued, or excuse me, had gained something through the flesh, or had through the acts of circumcision, then he would have had something to boast about. He says, therefore, if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, Paul is asking the reader to consider how Abraham found justification. What was it? Or what was the basis upon which Abraham was declared righteous before God? Verse 3 points out or proves that God declared Abraham righteous and justified by faith, not by acts of the flesh. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abram. before This was before he had renamed him to Abraham. And he tells him that he is his shield and there will be great blessings come his way. Abram says... It's going to have to become through one of the descendants of one of his servants because he doesn't have any children. God then tells him that he's going to bless him with a male heir, and not that only he would bless him with a male heir, but that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And two points come from this. First and foremost, Abraham believed in what God told him. It wasn't a mere acknowledgement. He entrusted his life to God's promise and God's plan. It wasn't, okay, God, you know, that sounds good and all, but I don't, I'm going to go along to get along. That wasn't Abraham's mentality at all. Abraham's mentality was he was going to fully entrust 
his life to the promises and plan of God. Secondly, based upon that faith, God credited Abraham as righteous. Now, did this make Abraham a sinless person? If you know the history of Abraham, Abraham had some sin problems. Multiple times he convinced people to lie on his behalf. But as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned, so as Abraham was no different than he was sinning, and he didn't have any sin in his life all of a sudden. And if justification was based upon being a Jew, then it was due them. If justification was based on just being born, being existence and being a part of a bloodline, then God really owed them justification. And what he's pointing out here is that faith has always been the point of justification. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That phrase at the beginning, I'm going to rephrase that to, and to the one who does not work. This cannot mean that a person can do nothing towards God. That's not what this means at all. Because if that's what that means, then Paul is contradicting himself in this very passage. Because he's asking you to apply your faith in God. He's asking you to do something towards God and apply your faith towards God. And this is where those passages get lifted out of these scriptures and these chapters and pulled out of context to fit a specific narrative to say you don't have to do anything. It's all on God and there's nothing that you have to do. And all along, that's not what Paul is teaching. And all that Paul's teaching about faith and he's teaching about Abraham's faith and how important that faith is. And he's asking or he's answering a natural question. Who is part of God's family? Who receives this pronouncement of justification? And the answer is simple. It's the, those that have faith like Abraham had. Not a bloodline but faith. And I really like verse 5 because of the statement, who justifies the ungodly? If you want to know about your relationship with God, this should tell you what your relationship with God is. You are the ungodly. You are the one who is unjustified. We are all unjustified before God. We are all ungodly before God. There's nothing about us that we can say, that we can come before God and say, I'm okay, and you must accept me based upon my great moral character or any great thing that I've done. He wants us to come to him humbly in faith as Abraham did. And understanding, as he said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, that we are justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now this all goes back to what God has done for us in declaring us righteous or not guilty or acquitted and the reality is, is that we didn't deserve it. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That we didn't deserve what God was doing to it for us. That there is no boasting. That Abraham had nothing to boast in. That you and I have nothing to boast in, as Paul told the church in Colossae and Colossians. We have nothing to boast in other than God, and Christ and Him crucified. Too often we think that we need to get our lives right before we can come to God. 
And I'm talking about two categories. The category of those that are outside of God that have never accepted Christ or looked at Christ. And oftentimes when they hear the truth of the gospel, they have a a mentality that they need to come before God and they need to get everything taken care of. Then they can come to God and that's not what God wants. I'm also talking to the established Christian who has a, a, a struggle with sin and thinks, I need to get all of this taken care of and then I can come to God. Many years ago, my children were all young. Aiden was, was a baby. I was home alone with the kids. And I was in the living room with Aiden. And we were sitting in the living room. And Ashton and Barrick were off playing <clears throat> in the back room. And I know this is going to make me sound like a horrible parent. But I fell asleep. In my defense, Aiden was that baby that if you were sitting down and he fell asleep, you were going to sleep. There was nothing you could do to stop it. My wife and I struggled for the first few years of his life in second service about which of us was going to hold him because one of us was going to sleep. So in my defense, Aiden knocked me out. I was awakened by this question from Bear to Ashton. Ashton, or not this question, this statement. Ashton, that's not where mama puts it. When you hear a statement like that, you immediately need to see what's going on. And I got up, and I was, by the time I got to the kitchen, Ashton and Barrett come bebopping through the kitchen, and Ashton goes, Dad, we, we got the paints out, and we played with them, and we made a bit of a mess, but we cleaned it up. Well, first and foremost, they didn't clean it up. I looked at the counter. There's still paint all over the counter. And they had proceeded to bebop on and go into their room. The truth was, it didn't matter if they cleaned it up. There was still a problem. The problem was you weren't supposed to be in the paints without mom and dad. That was a rule. I think it's still a rule even though she's 16 and he's 14. You're not supposed to be in the paints without mom and dad. You can clean it up all you want, but there's still the problem of the transgression. And that's the reality that we have to face even if we're outside of God or for the established Christian. Outside of God, you can't clean up your life. You can't clean up your mess because there's nothing you can do about the sin. To the established Christian, you can't do enough. You can't correct the sin. You can't fix the sin. Only God can deal with the sin. We can't come before God and say, well, I've done all of these wonderful things and I've, I've fixed my life, God. Here I am. I'm a better person. Accept me. We can't do that. Because at the end of the day, we can't deal with the sin. Only God can deal with the sin. We are the ungodly. We are the ones deserving of God's wrath. And we can't fix that sin. Only He could fix that sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Romans 4, verses 6, he says, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness (coughs) without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And I want us to notice the word works for just a moment. He uses this word many times. And once again, this is where these passages are a little bit misconstrued for for specific narratives. The word works he's talking about when he's talking about works are works specifically in the context of what we're talking about is circumcision. And he's talking about the works of the Old Testament law. And David speaks about this great blessing of that one God credits righteousness. 
If you want to know what justification looks like, this is what it looks like. Sins are not counted against us. We are imputed righteousness and we are given the status of righteous rather than the status of condemned. We are found not guilty because of Jesus Christ. Now Paul returns to his implied question that he'd asked in verse 5, and he specifically pins the question. He's there, cometh, he says, cometh this blessing in verse 9, this blessedness, then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For, for we say that faith is reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? Was he in circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in circumcision, in, in uncircumcision. Now, this is the reason we're slowing down. If you read these passages as Paul begins asking these questions, it is very mind-boggling. Because Paul is asked, he asks a ton of questions, and then you've got to determine on which side of the aisle is he asking the question from. Is he asking the question on his point trying to prove, or is he asking the question based upon coming from the Jews and the questions that he's probably had asked? And he goes back and forth, so the need to slow down, if you ever read Romans... And just as a reading, it's very, it can get confusing real quick just because of this back and forth that he has. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Is the blessing of justification only to them that are circumcised through the works of the law or also to the uncircumcised? And what Paul does is he sets us up here for a great flow of logic. Was Abraham credited as righteous based on his acts of circumcision? The answer is no. Because if you go back to Abraham's history, Abraham was credited, imputed, the Bible says that he was imputed as righteous in Genesis chapter 15, whenever he believed in what God told him, when he had faith in the promise and what God said he would do. Abraham wasn't circumcised until Genesis chapter 17. So he was granted righteousness before he was circumcised and credited as righteous. Now here's the key. Abraham was uncircumcised when he was declared righteous by his faith. The circumcision was never the mechanism for justification. Now, we look at that today and we go, okay, we kind of understand that. We don't, we're not really into obeying the acts of the Old Testament law. We don't worry about sacrifices. We don't worry about Sabbaths. Although there are different denominations nowadays that try to kind of bring some of that stuff back. But for the most part, we don't worry about those things. We understand that. But for the Jew who was reading this and understanding what is going on, Paul is crushing everything that they believed. He's used the law, the prophets. He's used David. He's using Abraham. And at the pinnacle of all of it, he says this. Abraham was justified before the very thing that you say justifies you. Your father was justified in his faith, not in his circumcision. Which begs the question, why didn't God have Abraham be circumcised before declaring him righteous? Well, he answers that in verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, 
which he had yet, being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Abraham was to be the father of all who had faith without being circumcised. That was all a part of God's plan. Whenever we read in the New Testament, and we read passages like Ephesians, where Paul talks about all of these wonderful things happening before the foundations of the world were formed. And we read in the Old Testament, we read about these prophecies, and we see all of these things unfold in the New Testament. We see all of God's plan unfold right before our eyes. And then we find these small details that teach us to appreciate God's wisdom and plan. That for God, for Abraham to be the father of all nations and all mankind, it had to happen before circumcision was ever in place. The Jews would look at this and their minds would essentially, they would be blown or they would be very upset. Paul calls the sign of circumcision a seal of righteousness. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 11, God calls the circumcision the sign of the covenant. I want us to see that this righteousness that Paul is talking about is a fulfillment of the covenant made between God and Abraham. This makes Abraham not only the father of the circumcised, but as well the uncircumcised. In verse 12, it says, "...in the father of the circumcision..." to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of the faith of our father, Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So Abraham is the father of the Jew, and he's also the father of the Gentile. He's all our father. If you're a Jew listening to this, you're probably extremely angry at this point. Because all this time, your faith was in your bloodline. And I want you to notice the great reversal that Paul does here. It's very important. Paul is calling on the Jew to conduct themselves like the Gentile. What does he say there? That Abraham was the father to those that also walk in the footsteps of of the faith. He's calling on the Jew to reverse their mentality and to become like the Gentile. The Gentile was the one that was not a part of the law, that was not a part of circumcision. They were outside of all of this, and the Gentile was the one who was acting in faith and walking according to the faith of Abraham. And Paul's telling the Jews, that's what you need to do. Not rely on the law. And this is what a call to walking in faith is about. And this call, as we see Abraham go on and on, is about a great testament or a great testimony of Abraham's faith. And at this point, there are three facts that need to be established. Number one, God through Jesus justifies the ungodly. We are the ungodly and we only have justification because of God and through the blood of Jesus Christ. Number two, God grants us the status of righteous based on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ, not a law. Walking in the footsteps of faith as Abraham did is what is required to receive a status of righteous. 
And thirdly, most, and most important, is what a blessing it is not to have our sins counted against us. That doesn't need to be overlooked in all of these questions that Paul's asking and all of this breaking apart of the law and the faith and all of that. What needs to really be understood is the great blessing that we have that our sins are not counted against us through the blood of Jesus Christ and our faithful walking as Abraham had walked in faith. We can be thankful and hopeful because we have that faith that follows after Abraham. Now, Paul clarifies that the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 is the promise for the justification of the world. He says in verse 13, for this promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The justification of faith on Abraham's behalf had nothing to do with keeping law. As a matter of fact, the promises made to Abraham happened 430 years before the law came into existence. The promise that his seed and he would be the father of many nations happened 430 years before. That promise also included a promise about a Messiah. If you go to Galatians chapter 3, we see the fulfillment of that promise. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So there were many parts of this promise, but one of them was the fact that the Messiah would come. Now there's two reasons that the law could not justify the world. First and foremost, for if they which were of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Can you see the position that the Jews are putting God in at this point? Here's this promise that God had made to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that his descendants would be as the stars, and if that promise or if justification only came through the Jews, then that left out a lot of people. And in leaving out that, all those people, that's contrary to the promise that God had made. And essentially, the Jews, what they're saying is that makes God a liar. Because now you have a certain group of people that have been left off, and that's not what the promise entailed. Secondly, the law worketh wrath. The law couldn't justify because it wasn't intended to justify. And Paul says the law worketh wrath. Paul taught earlier in Romans of its purpose and its intention was to point out sins, the consequences of sin, to guide people to Jesus Christ. It couldn't be the thing that justified. Whenever you consider what Paul says about the law in Galatians chapter 3, he talks about it being the schoolmaster that was to guide people to Jesus the problem the Jews had is that they were hanging on to the schoolmaster and not what was being taught. And they were ignoring what was being taught. That the law couldn't bring justification. Now Paul continues to hammer home this point, the universal availability of God's promises to Abraham. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end of the promise might be sure to all the seed, 
not to that only which is of the law, but to also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul clarifies who, the, who Abraham's offspring are. It's not merely those that are of the law. And at this point, he brings in another gear of salvation, grace. It's about the grace of God. And Paul proves this by pointing out Genesis chapter 17 and verse 5, that Abraham is the father of many nations, not just the, the nation of Israel. And he wants us to understand in relying on that grace. And he wants the Jews to understand that it's about the grace of God, and it's not about your bloodline, it's not about your acts, it's not about how faithfully you keep the law. At the end of, all of, the, at the end of the day, it's about this grace that God had extended. And you can faithfully follow as Abraham did. In verse 17, he says, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things, calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now, I don't believe that Paul is simply talking or describing the power of God in general terms. That God gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that did not exist. But when I read a passage like this, it seems out of place. All of a sudden, this discussion about the power of God and this statement about the power of God. And you wonder why he makes it. And first and foremost, Paul is kind of setting the reader up again as chapter or verses 18 through 22. Paul is going to talk about the miraculous birth of Isaac, Abraham's son. And this is the, the immediate picture. But in the broader picture, what has Paul been talking about? He's been talking about two groups of people, the Jew and the Gentile. And that they both need to be justified by faith. Consider that when Paul says that God brings to life the dead, he's referring to the Jews. He's not referring to the Gentile. The Jews were dead in their salvation because they were clinging to something that was no longer valid. They were clinging to something that didn't bring justification. They were the ones who were dead spiritually in God's eyes. It wasn't the Gentile who was following after the faith of Abraham. It was the Jew clinging to this Old Testament law. And this power to raise or quicken the dead is one that he's saying is he can raise the dead, the Jew, spiritually and make them alive. What a powerful statement Paul makes considering what the Jews believed. And that he was raised in that very life and understood every aspect of what they believed. They needed to understand that Abraham trusted in the specific promises of God. It says in verse 18, Who against hope believed in hope that he might be the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Speaking of Abraham, Abraham, contrary to hope, believed in hope. We look at these great characters of faith in places like Hebrews chapter 11. I don't believe that there's a greater statement that can be made of one's faith than this statement right here. Contrary to hope, Abraham believed in hope. 
Contrary to everything being impossible, Abraham relied on God and believed in hope, the promises that he made. Why does he say these things? Well, first of all, verse 19, we see three characteristics about Abraham's faith. And earlier I mentioned that blueprint and that template. This is the blueprint or template that we can have and follow after Abraham in our faith. And the first of that, it says in verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the, de- the deadness of Sarah's womb. And this is what contrary to hope, believed in hope means. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. How is it possible that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman could produce a child? Because God said it was going to happen. And Abraham strengthened, or was not weak in faith when God told him that. Something that we would view as impossible or an impossibility, and many times even ourselves today, whenever we look at something and go, there's no way that could happen. And I think of that in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think of that in terms whenever we see somebody struggling and we say they're never going to get any better. Or that person would never accept the gospel. Is that a statement about them or a statement about us and our weakness in faith? Earlier, Paul had said in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel was the power of God. Do we question the power of God? Do we question its ability and what it can do to other people's lives? Are we weakened in faith at those points? Secondly, it says that he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Abraham did not doubt or distrust because of unbelief. Now, You can directly connect belief and obedience many times through Romans. And I want you to consider for just one moment the unbelief and disobedience and a singular call that God made to Abraham. And that was the offering of his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Did he stagger when God called him to offer up his son as a sacrifice? Did he falter when God said, go Sacrifice Isaac. Not a second, not a minute. He immediately did what God asked him to do. He went and prepared a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was his son. We didn't read Abraham questioning God. Can you think about that for just a moment? This was his only male heir. If I'm in a similar situation, I'm kind of going through a logic here going, well, this is my only male heir. How is this promise going to be fulfilled if I don't have a male heir? That's not what Abraham did. It goes on to say, but was strong in faith giving glory to God. 
continuing on in that understanding of what Abraham was doing. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19 mentions the fact that Abraham reckoned that God could resurrect Isaac. He relied on the power of God and he reckoned that God could resurrect Isaac even if he sacrificed him on the altar. Always relying on God's power, always relying on God's plan. And we see that strength in his faith and his command to offer Isaac. God is calling for our faith to be like Abraham's. And if in that one instance, in that one picture only, shows how great his faith is, and then we look at our lives today and our faith and how we struggle with so many things in this wonderful world we have with all of these great blessings and we can't seem to get over the smallest things in our lives. And our faith falters and fails. And all along we have this beautiful example of Abraham who followed God in faith and did everything that God asked of him and he wasn't a perfect man. And I sometimes beat myself up when I falter at the smallest thing. And I question God's plan and God's purpose at the smallest inconvenience that I have in this life. Juxtaposed to a man like Abraham who God said, I want you to offer your only son. I look pretty pitiful from time to time. And the reality is, is God is not calling for mere belief. He's not calling for mere acknowledgement. What he is calling for is a strong faith, which begs the question, how can I have this faith of Abraham? In verse 4, chapter, chapter or verse 21 and 22, it says, And being fully persuaded, speaking of Abraham, that what he had promised, he was, also, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham acknowledged and gave glory to God. How can we not give glory to God knowing what He has done? How can we not give glory to God knowing that all the way back in the beginning of Genesis and all of this was going on, that He had a plan for your soul? That He had a promise for your soul? And it's salvation. How can we not give God glory? How can we not be empowered to worship? How can we not be knowing that this plan was set forth a long time ago. And as Jesus was on the cross, shedding His blood for you and I, that plan came into picture. Because now we have salvation because of that blood. When you go back to Romans chapter 1, Paul identifies sin as not glorifying God, not worshiping God. Abraham acknowledged that God had this ability to carry out His plan. He says in verse 21, and being fully persuaded. Fully persuaded that God would fulfill His promise. 
you and I today have a promise of salvation. But much more than that, we have a promise beyond this world. What are we caught up in? Are we caught up in the promise that goes well beyond this world, or are we caught up in this world? What is our anchor in this life? Are we tethering ourselves to the world, or are we tethering ourselves to the promises that God gave to Abraham and you and I? How do you get this faith? You follow after the template of Abraham and the blueprint that he gave in his, in his life. Because this is why his faith was imputed to him for righteousness. He had a bold faith. He had a faith that he understood what God wanted, and it kept him tethered to the promises of God and to the plan of God. The question this morning is, is what are you tethering yourself to? The world or the promises of God? If you're here this morning and you've never tethered yourself to the promises of God, we can help you with that. We can help you understand what God has done for us. Paul later talks about in Romans chapter 6, he says there, know that as many of you were baptized, were baptized into death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm paraphrasing there. And that you're raised to a newness of life. We can help you with that this morning if you've not taken that opportunity. Sometimes we are tethered to, the, to God and His promises but we want to reach to the world a little bit. Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes our faith is weakened. We can help with that also. We can offer prayers on your behalf. We can give you assistance and support. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.